and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. The Prime Minister of Sweden, Mr Olaf Palmer, has been assassinated. He had a huge influence in international politics. Who killed Olaf Palmer? That mystery still exists. In 1986, Sweden's Prime Minister was assassinated at point-blank range in a street in Stockholm. Over the years, various people were suspected of the killing. But three years ago, the case was officially closed. Swedish police said they believed a man called Stig Enstrong shot Olof Palmer, and he is long dead. But not everyone is persuaded. Stig Larsson was obsessed with finding the truth. And if he would solve the murder, he would also save democracy. I'll never forgive them for killing Olof Palmer. We are definitely being lied to. I was asked to kill Olof Palmer. The killer vanished into thin air. If it looks like a cover-up, if it smells as a cover-up, it is a cover-up. One of the sceptics is Jan Stocklasser, a former diplomat from Sweden. He joins me to talk about the case, which is the topic of a new Sky documentary, The Man Who Played With Fire. Welcome to the bunker, Jan. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. So you talk about the Palmer virus. This murder happened 37 years ago, but people just can't leave it alone. How did you catch the virus? I'm, I'm a writer, I'm an author, so I write books, and that's what I do for a living. And um, I was doing research for another book when I, by coincidence, ran into a paper on the Palmer murder about a person who was a suspect. And I asked uh, the lady who had the archive, who wrote this paper? And she said, Stieg Larsson. And I said, uh, you mean the crime writer? And she said, yes. And he was extremely, he was even obsessed by the murder. Uh, and there may be more papers. And that's what triggered my interest. Stig Larsson died in 2004, just at the point when he knew that all he, three books that he wrote uh, would be uh, become a success. So he was just on the verge of become, becoming this world-famous crime writer. And he didn't ripe the fruits from that, unfortunately. So Olof Palmer is a paradox because he was known as a peaceful man, a peace-loving man, but there were many reasons why someone would have wanted to kill him. He seemed to pose a threat to several countries, didn't he? To some extent, he was, he was fighting for peace, but he was also a fierce uh, fighter. So he was not definitely not a neutral run-of-the-mill Swede, if I would say, put it like that. He was definitely larger than Sweden, I would say. And he was a politician that... Uh, acted uh, and went into world politics, and he wasn't afraid. So he provoked many people all around the globe. It was everything from even the, the British government, but especially the US government, uh, Ronald Reagan at the time, towards the end of the Cold War, and on the other side, the Soviet Union. So he was actually he was fighting for the small countries and their independence to have their own role between the two superpowers. And he was very much opposed to apartheid in South Africa, wasn't he? The fight against apartheid was one of his longest fights. He actually started with that uh, early on in his political career, and it went on all the way until the day he died. But it wasn't just abroad where Palmer was the object of suspicion. There was a thing called Palmer hate in Sweden. Tell us about that. Yeah, we have never had any politicians, a politician I would say, that has been the focus of such so much hatred. Half of the people liked or loved Olof Palme and half of the people disliked or hated him. The dislike went gradually into hatred and there was quite a large minority of people that actually really hated him and many of those would uh, like to see him dead even. Why did they hate him? 
He wasn't a neutral person, if, if, even if you watch old clips of him. He was a great speaker, even. Uh, probably one of the best ones in Swedish history. Uh, but he was also quite arrogant and provocative, extremely intelligent, uh, and he made use of it. So he could even even insult his opponents that were not that clever. So at, uh, quite often it went the other way. So he would win the argument, but the other person would gain the popularity. That was something that triggered uh, the hatred also, that his arrogance. He also came from the upper class in Sweden, and he joined the Labour, the equivalent to the Labour Party. So he sort of switched sides, which was also another reason for the the, the, the right-wingers or the, and the upper class to see him as a traitor. On the Labour side, on the other hand, they thought that he was he was upper class. Why, why is he with us? So there was a suspicion on uh, in all camps even. In February 1986 in Stockholm, when he was killed, he'd come out of a cinema and he'd dismissed his bodyguards. Teddy had death threats. Did he feel in danger at the time when he was killed? Yes, he, he, he had repeatedly death threats. And I, I would probably guess that there were other death threats towards other other politicians in Sweden at the time also, but he definitely received the, the, the highest amount and they were continuous and going on. So he sort of got used to that. So he, he had decided, and there are several quotes actually where he's saying that I, I can't live my life being afraid because then I can't act, which was the most important for him. He lived with the reality that he, he was threatened and could any time be killed. And what happened after he left the cinema? Olaf Palme and his wife went to the cinema for the late night show on a Friday night in February. And it was actually a really cold night. The movie started around nine o'clock and then around 11 o'clock they, they left the cinema, which means that any person, any people who would see him go into the cinema would know that he would come out two hours later. And when they came out of the cinema, uh, they started walking towards their home which was some a couple of miles away. Uh, and they started w- walking along one of the largest streets in Stockholm called Sveavägen. And when they had crossed the street and walked some half a mile, uh, a man uh, stepped up from behind, put one shot in the back of Olaf Palme, shot another shot that scraped the back of his wife. Then the killer ran into an alley and disappeared forever. So this does sound like a hitman, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like an ordinary criminal. Do Swedes normally carry around, or did they in 1986 normally carry around glocks that could be used for this purpose? Yeah, we even was a, a stronger weapon than a Glock. It was a, a, a Magnum Smith and Wesson 357 Magnum revolver. So it's a huge, huge gun actually for this purpose. So there, it's that's the paradox. It's in some ways it sounds like an extremely professional hitman that really managed to do this uh, in an efficient way. On the other hand, there are other things saying the exactly opposite why only one shot a professional man a hitman would probably put two or three shots to be completely sure that the person is dead running into the alley it's in some ways is a perfect escape route in some other ways the opposite there is an eternal discussion was it a lone killer or a group of people with a professional hitman this was a massive shock to Swedes, wasn't it? It isn't the kind of thing that happens in Sweden, an assassination like this. It was the biggest shock Sweden has ever has had 
at least in my lifetime and probably long before that even even we weren't part of the second world war so this was one of the most violent actions and biggest shocks and even a threat against democracy so it sent shockwaves through the country at that time and they've been going on since they sort of go away and then come back come back again so it's still uh, a shock and that meant the police were under enormous pressure to solve it of course this was the biggest crime that has happened in sweden uh, and so the pressure to solve this quickly was huge uh, and unfortunately they started out in a really completely disastrous way even during the night of the murder and the, in the first days they did a lot of decisions that were completely wrong i would say and how long did it take them to find a suspect it only took them a few few days to find the first suspect uh, and and then he was dismissed a couple of weeks later and then they continued to 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 find suspects they found uh, a couple of months later they found the kurdish organization pkk and then that w- was dim- dismissed a few months after that so it, the first real close to solving the killer killing you would say would be 2 years after the murder when they prosecuted a lone drug addict called Krista Pedersen. He was actually convicted in the first level of our court system and then freed in the second level. And that was sort of the solution that most Swedes believed in in for at least a couple of decades. And Palmer's wife thought that he had done it, but his son uh, thought so too, but later changed his mind, didn't he? Yeah, Palmer's wife was convinced, but it's also, you should know that the first time she heard his name and saw his picture was close to two years after the murder. And many things had happened in between those, these times. So, uh, she, she thought that she had seen him. The son who, who was also present that evening, but not at the site, uh, he first thought that she was right and then, then he later changed his mind. You must also understand that she was almost like the queen of Sweden at at the time. And when she said something, many people, for their own sake or for her sake, said that they support her memory of that. So there are a lot of potential leads in this case. And in the documentary, you interview a man called uh, Ivan, who says he was asked by the CIA to kill Palmer. How much credence do you give, did you give, to his version of events? Well, Ivan, he's a, a Yugoslavian, a Yugoslavian mercenary who had fought in 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 Africa, in Rhodesia, among other countries. His story is very colourful, I would say, uh, and you can see that there are definitely added different details to it. But the most important part of that story is that it's proven that he actually called the secret police of Sweden and called several other authorities and said that he had been offered money to kill Olaf Palmer. And he did that before the murder. And that's proven. So in that sense, I think that he's he is credible, definitely. And the trail took you to North Cyprus. Who did you interview there? One of the acquaintances, actually, of this, uh, the, the Yugoslavian mercenary, ex-mercenary, uh, was Mr. Bertil Vedin, uh, who is a Swedish citizen or was a Swedish citizen. He's passed away since two years. And he used to live in Sweden. Then he moved to London for 10 years. And three months prior to the murder, he moved to Northern Cyprus. And uh, Northern Cyprus is, as you know, a place where you can, can't be extradited from. And so it was a safe place to move. He was since many years working for the South African uh, Secret Service. 
So Mr. Bertel Vedin was uh, living in northern Cyprus, working for the uh, South African Secret Service, and he had great contacts in the far right. But most importantly, Stieg Larsson, the crime writer, wrote a memo about him, which I found, where it says that Mr. Bertel Vedin is supposed to be the middleman in the murder of Olaf Palmer. And you became, as time went on, more and more convinced by the South African links to this murder, didn't you? And you came across a man who's still alive, who was responsible for targeted killings of anti-apartheid activists in a number of different cities and places. Tell us about him. He's a really unpleasant guy, isn't he? You're thinking of uh, Craig Williamson? He's got a nickname also, the, the, the super spy, because he managed actually to infiltrate an international group that was part of his mission, mission was actually to fight apartheid. It was led by, by several Swedes, actually, uh, and financed to uh, the most extent by, by Swedish funds. Uh, he managed to infiltrate that group, and then later he, he continued the fight against the anti-apartheid fighters in Europe. Uh, in and in Africa, and what he did, and he, what he was received amnesty for in the Truth and Reconciliation Committee in in South Africa was for several murders uh, in in Southern Africa. But he also uh, confessed that he had been part of organizing uh, a bomb against the ANC office in London. So he was one of the most active and most professional. Uh, fighters for apartheid um, in the 1980s. Do you think he did it? I could quote Bertel Vedin when I met Bertel Vedin in Cyprus. He said, I should probably be careful of what I'm saying. He might listen to this. Let's just move to 2020 when the police in Sweden announced a press conference. What happened at that press conference? Well, you have to realize that this was the moment, one of the biggest moments. If all Swedes, most Swedes remember what they did uh, in the night of the murder in 1986, if they were already born then, then most people will also remember what they did on the 10th of June, June in 2020, because everybody was watching this. Because strangely enough, the prosecutor has said, in a few months' time, we will present the solution to the Palmer murder. And that was already 34 years after the murder. So everybody was expecting, everybody was talking, which will the solution be? And there were sort of coming two or three solutions that, that were possible. But everybody turned, tuned in uh, to that press conference. And how did you feel when you watched that conference and when you heard the police say that they believed they had found the killer? Yeah, that's what they started out with. And then I was thinking, yeah, this is, and then they were mentioning stuff that I've been working on and other people had been working on. And I was, I was thinking that they may actually be presenting the right solution. But you could also see that they were not very sure of themselves. It was quite a very dry press conference where they were showing a PowerPoint presentation, telling a lot of background before they came with a big revelation. We believe it's this graphic designer who was by, coincidence stepping out of his office by coincidence wearing a magnum smith and wesson magnum revolver 357 and uh, by coincidence he was lucky enough to put one shot in the back of our prime minister and then managed to disappear for 20 minutes before he came back to his office it's an, a completely incredible story is this a cover-up this is definitely a, a cover-up 
And there's no question about it, actually. The only question is if there is a cover-up by the people who committed the crime or, and people or, or people that were actually at least involved in the crime. Um, but this is, you have to remember that this has gone on for 37 years. Through these times, the police and the authorities, even the media, have committed so many mistakes. Uh, and there are, at least among politicians and the police, there are many people that don't want the details on, on what they actually did early on and, and also later in the, in the investigation, uh, the wrong decisions that were taken. So in that sense, these things are actually being covered up actively now because uh, we should be able to see everything in the investigation. Uh, and the police are actually redacting almost everything that they hand out from, from it. So in that sense, it's definitely 100% a cover-up. Is it possible, Jan, that the Olof Palmer murder set off what you might call Nordic noir, this preoccupation that exists in, in uh, detective and crime fiction in the Nordics about deep mystery and conspiracy? So I think that there's something to the, the nature of Sweden. It's a country where you, you it, on the surface, everything looks great. It's, uh, it's, it's a working welfare state where everybody is taken care of and everything look, looks good. Um, and then behind that, as any country, we have all these dark sides and things going on. And we have the, the extremely dark winter that comes um, every year and, and puts that in, into a half state of depression. There is a larger reason than the Palmer murder uh, for, for the Nordic noir genre. But then two things <laughs> really pushed it ahead, and that was the Palmer assassination. And then Steve Larsen as a person who was by chance obsessed by the Palmer murder. But when he wrote these th three books, and he actually managed to finish the three books before he died, the huge interest into his books. He sold close to 100 million books after his death. Uh, that's made a, a full generation of, of new writers uh, uh, in Sweden and probably Norway, Denmark and, and Finland even um, start writing these crime stories. And, and, and still the setting is perfect. It's, you have this perfect nature. I'm sitting now looking out of a, 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 a fantastic landscape and then behind that, you know that only three kilometers from here, there was a lady that was beaten to death uh, some 10 years ago, even where I am sitting now. So the, it, it is a perfect setting for these, these type of stories, I think. Are you going to carry on investigating this? Have you still got the Palmer virus? Are you going to let, let it lie? <laughs> it's possibly like in Clockwork Orange at the end. It's like, and God, I was cured. I, I think I'm cured. Uh, uh, and I've thought so for a, a couple of years. But I, it keeps coming back. So the documentary and there are things happening all the time. So I'm, I'm pulling a few threads still. But then I'm also, uh, the virus is also active on other events in, in, in history. So now I'm actually writing uh, my sequel to the book, uh, which is mainly about uh, the Pan Am 103, the Lockerbie bombing, and how Olaf Palmer's close associate, Mr. Bernd Carlson, UN commissioner for Namibia, wasn't supposed to be on the plane, but he was. And was that just a coincidence? That sounds very intriguing, and I look forward to to reading that. I, I assume as well that you kind of you probably feel that Stieg Larsson wouldn't want you to let this drop, don't you? Definitely, that he wasn't a conspiracy theorist, but he was 
definitely aware that conspiracies do exist, political conspiracies, conspiracies do exist. And he, he, he didn't shy away from putting a lot of energy into, to, to going through a lot of material to find if there was truth to anything like that. And you should remember that in all three books that he wrote, the Palmer murder was actually mentioned and it became more and more relevant. So if I, uh, tangible even. I would say that if he if he would have lived, the the next book or this the second next book would be about the assassination of our prime minister. Jan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Great to be here. The Man Who Played with Fire is available on Sky in four episodes, and it's based on your book of the same title. And if you enjoyed this episode of the Bunker, do consider backing us on Patreon. It starts from three pounds a month, which will barely buy you a coffee these days. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Podmasters contributing editor Ros Taylor. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Liam Tate and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.